Well, good morning again. I want to give you a quick update on uh, where we are uh, as elders in our search for a uh, another youth pastor. Um, we uh, we did have an interview. I think it was now almost two weeks ago uh, with a young man who's very gifted, um, but I don't think is the right person for us. Uh, and for this role, um, we'll be talking to two other young men that are, uh, relatively speaking, local to us. Uh, I mean, they're within 50 miles of the church here, uh, here this week. And uh, so we would encourage you to pray for those interactions and for God's continued leading uh, in this whole process. You know, honestly, we... we um, we know that God has someone out there for us. We don't know his name. And we know that God does. And so we would pray that uh, he would lead and that we would follow and that he would make his direction very clear. So, um, so continue to pray for us in that. Uh, you know, certainly if I have my way, we'll have somebody in place uh, by January 1st. Uh, if uh, God has his way, it will be a, a different plan probably than that. Uh, and uh, we want to follow God's plan rather than mine. So uh, if you would continue to pray for us on that. Uh, we have a long passage here this morning, uh, longer than I usually preach, actually, 45 verses. So I want to just pray and, uh, and get into it. Okay, so let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank you that you do faithfully lead and guide your people into your ways and, and the path that you want us to go on. You tell us not only right and wrong, but also right and left uh, as we seek you. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to know your will and to walk in it. And, Father, that we might obey your word as it's revealed to us this morning. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to His son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, these six verses give us the context for when and where this story happens. Uh, Jesus has uh, begun his ministry. He started it in Galilee. He's gone down to Judea near Jerusalem. As John the Baptist's ministry is beginning to decline and Jesus' ministry is rising, Jesus' disciples have begun baptizing people in Jesus' name. And Jesus is preaching and His level of renown is beginning to grow but Jesus does not want there to be conflict between His ministry and John's ministry. So rather than stay 
and perhaps allow the Pharisees the opportunity to polarize uh, these two ministries in opposition to each other with the people of Israel, Jesus decides to head back home to Galilee. And the shortest route uh, to Galilee, which is up in the north, is through this area called Samaria. Now, I want to get you oriented to where Samaria is. Samaria is part of the region that formed the ancient northern kingdom that split off uh, from Judah after, after King Solomon, the kingdom was divided north and south. Uh, the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And this, this, uh, the kingdom in Israel built itself a new capital city, uh, and they, it was, the new capital city was called Samaria. And so that became uh, not just a designation for that city, but also for the whole area. And the people who lived in the north eventually fell into idolatry, and then they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. A couple hundred years before, the people of Judah were taken into exile by the Babylonians. And, and when the Assyrians came in, they took all of the people with any money, all of the people with stature, all of the people with, who were kind of the elite of the culture, and deported them off to Assyria. And then they brought in new people from other nations and settled them in amongst the very poorest of the people of Israel. And over time, those foreigners and the, the remaining people of the nation of Israel that were there in the north began to intermarry. And they became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans uh, continued, you can read about this in the book of Second Kings. Uh, in fact, if you're in small group, you will this week. Um, uh, you can read about this in 2 Kings, and, and it describes how these people began to worship the Lord and the gods of the nations that these people brought with them. And in fact, they built on Mount Gerizim, which is right near this town of Sychar, a temple to rival the one in Jerusalem. And that temple was built about, uh, about 400 B.C., about 400 years before Jesus, and about 200 years before Jesus, the Jews regained their independence down in the south, and they decided, you know, I know what's a good idea. We should get rid of that temple in the north. And they went in and demolished it. And that did not, um, as you might imagine, endear them, one people group, to another. They, you destroyed our temple. What's wrong with you, right? And... So the Jews and the Samaritans began to um, have great conflict between one another, and the Jews regarded the Samaritans on their part as half-breeds and as idolaters and as people unfaithful to the covenant God had made with them. And the Samaritans on their part regarded the Jews as self-righteous, pious, uh, people that wanted nothing to do with them. And there was kind of mutual hatred going back and forth. And Jesus needs to go through this area. It's the shortest route back home to Galilee. And he, so, so geographically, it just makes sense to go through here. But John uses a very specific word. The word that says he had to pass through Samaria is a very interesting word in the Gospel of John. It's the word... D-E-I in Greek, 
And it means it is necessary or he must. And John uses it in a very, in a very small number of situations in the Gospel of John to indicate that this is God's plan. And this is happening according to God's will. So Jesus is not merely making a trip through Samaria because it's the easiest way to get home. It's something that God had designed, something that was part of God's purpose, God's plan. He had to go through Samaria, and He had to show up in this town of Sychar. This is not an accident, in other words. This isn't just, you know, we were driving along the road and this is the, this is the place that we stopped. Jesus stops here specifically specifically for a particular person, in fact, who we're going to meet in the next section. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to Him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it Himself, as did His sons and His livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 
Jesus is tired. It's interesting. little detail. You know, Jesus is fully God. We already have seen John testify to that reality, and we believe that. Jesus is fully God. But He was also fully human in every way. And so Jesus is tired. And on top of that, thirsty. And He sits down at this well in the middle of the day. And He sees a woman coming to the well for a drink. Now you might not realize it, but that's really strange. Because it's the middle of the day. If you go around the world to places where water does not come out of a pipe, but comes from a well, there are two times of day that you go to get water. One is at dawn, and one is at dusk. And the reason is, especially in a desert place like Israel, that's when it's cooler outside. And hauling water is hot work. Especially, uh, I don't know if you know this, but this well is still there today. Today, it's 100 feet deep. It has filled in some. In Jesus' day, it would have been very deep. And it's a spring-fed well, still there, as I said. And it's a lot of work to haul water down into that well and then haul it back up. And she's coming in the middle of the day. Why is that? We're going to find out in a minute. And on top of that, when she gets there, Jesus speaks to her. And that's also really strange. From a cultural perspective, men in Jewish culture did not speak to women. In fact, some rabbis said that it was sinful even to talk to your wife. Think about that. Some of you men are thinking, where do I read that? Okay. Some of, you, some of you ladies are thinking, that would be horrible. That somehow we're justifying some guy's rebellion on the basis of Scripture. Where are we getting that idea? Right? But in that culture, if you were a Jewish man, you did not speak to any women in public especially a woman to whom you were not married. And if you were a Jewish rabbi, that went doubly so. And then on top of that, this is a, not just a Jewish woman, this is a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman. Someone that the Scripture says here, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, the woman is confused. She says, why is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? And he asks her on top of that for a drink. And when it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, what that literally means is this. A Jewish person would not touch anything that a Samaritan had handled. There's a racial thing going on here. Okay? I'm not old enough to remember this, but there was a time in our country where they had divided water fountains... Black, whites only, right? You remember that, some of you? Down in the south they had that. This is that kind of thing. How is, that, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are going to ask me for a drink? Clearly the only water pot I've got is the one that my hands are all over. It's a racial deal. And 
And Jesus says, well, actually, if you knew God's gift and who it is that's asking you, you would have not only given him a drink, you'd have asked him for a drink. Because he'd have given you something better. He'd have given you living water. Now, living water is one of these terms that's in Hebrew thought is kind of an interesting word. It has two meanings. Living water is the, is the phrase that, that Jewish people, Hebrew-speaking people, would have used to talk about water from a spring. Water that was flowing. And that's how she takes Jesus' meaning. She says, well, look, man, you haven't even got a bucket. Where are you going to get some living water? This is the only well around, and there isn't any streams. So where's the living water? And, and she says, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? In other words, hey, our great ancestor had to dig this well to get water. And it's a deep well. He had to go down a long way to get any kind of water. And you're talking about flowing water. Where are you going to get that from? You got some kind of magic ability we don't know anything about? That's basically what she's asking him. Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus says, this water that out of this well is not going to permanently satisfy your thirst. But the water I give becomes a spring of water within, welling up to eternal life. And you notice how she reacts? She says, sir, give me some of that water. So I won't have to come, I won't be thirsty or have to come here to get water. Give me some of that. I want some of that living water. Again, this is a hot job. It's a lot of work. Water weighs nine pounds per gallon. You're hauling enough for a day, you're hauling a lot of water. There's work involved. Jesus is not as concerned about her body's thirst as He is about the thirst in her soul. So He starts probing into her sin. And He puts His finger right on that place in her soul and pushes on it. Which I think is interesting. Fascinating. He says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. Which, formally speaking, is true. She is not married at that moment to the guy that she is living with. Amen? Jesus calls out, though, the full truth. She says, look, you've had five husbands, and you're living with a man you're not married to who won't give you his name. In the culture of that day, you know, people did not live terribly long, and so it was not that unusual for somebody to be married more than once. You know, people died of things like cholera and, uh, you know, typhoid and whatever else at a fairly young age a lot of times. And so to be remarried to a different spouse is, is not all that uncommon. But culturally, you were allowed three spouses. Three. This woman has had five, and she's now living with a guy to whom 
she is not married. And in the culture of that time, she would have been regarded as little more than a prostitute. And in fact, I think that's the reason she's coming to get water at noon. No one comes to get water at noon unless you want to avoid everybody else who's going to get water. And in the culture of that day, try to imagine this. This is one where there is a lot of stigma attached to this lady and her life. And she's trying to avoid all the stares and the whispers and the, hey, there's so-and-so. Don't you know she has had five husbands? She's living with a guy and she's not married to him. There she is. The scarlet harlot of Sychar. I'm serious, okay? And you think people don't do that? People don't do that? That's exactly what people do. And she's trying to avoid all of that, and she runs into this man who is doing everything culturally backward. Talking to her, asking her for a drink, pushing on her sin. Jesus' statement is very clear, and it's very clear that He has insight into her heart and into her life. And it reveals to her that He must be a prophet. Because she's just met this fella. And He knows everything about her. And she says, sir, you must be a prophet. So she asks Him a religious question, right? Well, hey... Since you're a Jew and since you're a prophet, let me ask you something religious. Our father said we should worship on this mountain, meaning Mount Gerizim, the mountain in the Old Testament that was associated with blessing, the place where Abraham and, and Jacob built altars back in the day. So our father said that's where we should have worship. In fact, they were still worshiping at an altar on Mount Gerizim in those days. And you Jews say it's down in Jerusalem. What do you think, Jesus? Which one is it? Take up sides here in this religious debate that your ancestors and mine have been having. Jesus, though, changes the focus in His response. He answers the question. He answers the question. He says, woman, again, you should read that whenever, whenever Jesus says that, it's, it's, it's not as harsh as it reads in English. It's something like ma'am or madam. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Meaning, y'all in Samaria that have invented your own Bible and invented your own way of worshiping God, you're worshiping in ignorance. You're worshiping a person who is different from the one that you proclaim. But, the issue is not the place. The issue is the method of worship and the heart of the worshiper. He says, he says, but the hour is coming and it's now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Let me explain what that means. God is spirit means that He is not a mere human. In fact, He is invisible. He is divine. He is unknowable to us as people unless somehow He chooses to reveal Himself to us. We cannot access, we cannot obtain uh, any knowledge whatsoever about God except insofar as God chooses to reveal Himself. Amen? He exists outside of our immediate senses and perception. God is a spirit. And the, the beautiful thing about God is that He has chosen to reveal Himself. Amen? He has. And He has shown us, in fact, perfectly the truth about Himself in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And so to worship the Father in spirit and truth is to worship Him in the fullness of the supernatural life that you receive from God in spirit, and in accordance with the true revelation that God has made about Himself in the person of Jesus. That's in truth. So, so you receive supernatural life from God, and you become like Him. You have your spirit renewed. Therefore, you worship God in spirit. And you worship Him in accordance with the revelation He has made about Himself in Jesus. Therefore, you worship Him in truth. So that you don't make up for yourselves what kind of God you want to worship. You worship God according to the truth that He has revealed about Himself as He has given you new life, a new spirit within you. He puts His Spirit within you and then you worship Him according to who Jesus reveals Him to be. In spirit and in truth. And the woman is intrigued. And she says, well, I know that when Messiah comes, that He's going to explain all of this to, the, to us. And I think actually she's kind of hinting to Jesus like, are you the Messiah? Because you're doing all kinds of weird stuff. And you're telling me things about myself that nobody who just met me could possibly know. And you seem to have a lot of understanding about who God is. Are you the Messiah? I know when Messiah comes, He's going to make all of this clear. And Jesus says, what? I, the one who speaks to you, Am he. And right at that moment, right at that moment, the disciples get back and they are confused. <laughs> By the way, one of the things that is encouraging about the disciples uh, is that they're always confused. Amen. Because, because when I read my Bible, I am often confused. I don't always get it. I don't always understand what is going on. And Jesus, by the way, remember, is doing a bunch of things that cut completely across the grain with His culture. 
And he's talking to this woman, and none of the disciples dare to say anything. They're like, I don't know what's going on with Jesus. He's talking to a girl. I don't understand. <laughs> okay. I mean, there was, a, there was definitely a, just a casual sexism, a casual racism about the expectations of Jewish culture in that day, and Jesus defies every bit of it. And they're confused by that. How can that be? And they haven't learned yet that in Christ we all have equal access to God and equal value before God. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. Amen? We all stand equal before the Lord. We all have equal access to God, equal value before Him. And, and right as they get back, the woman leaves her water jar and runs off. She's forgotten to even get a drink. She runs off to town to tell everybody, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she's convinced he's the Messiah even though they just met. Now we rejoin the disciples and Jesus in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor and many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now, the disciples basically, this is the situation. They're walking along the road. They've gone off to get sandwiches. They come back. Jesus is speaking with a woman. They're totally confused by that. And when they get back, they're saying, hey, man, we brought you a sandwich. Why don't you eat one? And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they're like asking each other, did you bring him a sandwich? Maybe somebody else brought him one. I mean, what, what's, what's the deal? Where, I, I, how come he's not hungry? And they're wondering if somebody else has brought him lunch. But then he makes it very clear. He says, my food is to do God's will. In other words, you all need to realize there are some things more important than lunch. 
He says, don't you understand? People normally say there's four months until the harvest. So you plant in May, you reap in September. Normally four months until the harvest. But if you can just lift up your eyes and look around, men, you will see the spiritual harvest is coming in. It's all around you. It's springing up from what I have just sown in this woman's life. And they're about to reap what they didn't sow and bring in the harvest. And then who's the sower? Jesus. Who are the reapers? The disciples. He says the sower and the reaper are going to rejoice together as the harvest comes in. And I'm sending you out to labor for what you didn't plant. Meaning, you didn't do anything. You were just off getting snacks. And I planted a seed in this woman's life. It has grown up into a harvest of all of these people coming out, believing in Messiah. And lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. It was the harvest. It was the souls of the many Samaritans in that town who believed in Jesus. And some, it says, believed immediately because of her testimony. And others, after he had stayed there two days, underline that, he stayed there two days. You want to talk about violating cultural norms? Normally, Jesus, you know, normally Jews would have just kind of sped their way on the road through Samaria. We just got to get through this place. You know, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be around these people. I don't want to touch anything that they've touched. Jesus stays with them two days. And many more believed because they saw and they spoke with Jesus themselves. And they became convinced. Jesus crosses every cultural and racial line of His own day in staying there and doing this. By the way, you think He was intending to do that to teach His disciples anything? I think so. I think so. And after all this, Jesus goes back to Galilee and He's warmly received there because all of the Galileans around His hometown saw His ministry in Jerusalem and they were impressed by what He did there. So what's the point of this text? This is a beautiful little story. It's got lots of detail. Lots of things that we could draw out of it. But, but let me just draw out two things to emphasize. Number one, Jesus does not save in general. He does not save in general. He saves particular people. Particular people. God's salvation is for individual people whom He personally seeks out and saves. As John tells us, Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? To save this woman. By the way, whose name we never get. This particular woman, and through her to save a whole bunch of other Samaritans who were all saved on an individual basis through her testimony. And men and women, beloved, if you are a Christian today, the same thing has happened to you. That Jesus personally chased you down, 
if you will. He saved you in particular. As the, as the, old, the old hymn, uh, classic hymn, Victory in Jesus, there's a line in it that goes like this, He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. That's true. He sought you out. If you are a Christian today, it is because God sought you out and saved you and bought you and redeemed you and brought you into His kingdom just like He went and got this woman. Why did He go? Because He had to. Because going there was the only way that this woman and these people would have been saved. Why did God go and arrange the circumstances of your life that you might be saved? Because He wanted you in the kingdom. He saves specific people. And by the way, if you're not a Christian today, let me just tell you this. It is not an accident that you are here. This is not coincidence. You're not just here by random chance. You are here because God called you to this place on this day at this time to hear this message. And to know that God loved you before you knew Him. And that He is seeking you today. And calling you into relationship with Himself. And that if you will put your faith in Jesus just as this woman did, just as all of the people there in Samaria did, just as His disciples did, just as billions of people all over the world have done, God will save you too. Your being here is not an accident any more than Jesus going to Samaria was an accident. It's by God's intention and design. And He is calling you to be saved. By the way, have you got baggage? Have you got a life with some decisions of which you're not especially proud? This woman did. Plowed through five marriages, was living with a guy in, in open immorality. She was the talk of the town in every negative way possible. And Jesus went to get her. Jesus specializes in saving people like her, people like you, people like me. You know, Scott was fairly effusive up here a while ago, but I have often said, if you all knew everything about me that Jesus knows about me, you would not let me stand up here. That's a fact. There's a lot more sin in my heart than I would ever want to admit to in a public way. And I'm everlastingly glad I do not have a thought bubble above my, above my skull every day as I go through life. Because there is nothing in this fool that says, this is a righteous person. This is a sinner who is saved by God's grace. This is a person who has done many things of which he is deeply ashamed and for which he thanks God every day for his forgiveness. There are not, it is not the case that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The world does not divide that way. The world divides between bad people and Jesus. That's it. 
And if you're a bad person, join the club. <laughs> All of us were bad people who nevertheless received grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation not by our effort, but by God's mercy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, He saves us. So if you are not a Christian today, I invite you and plead with you and beg you to put your trust in Jesus Christ and receive salvation. Salvation that God is calling you to receive and to enjoy and to be blessed by. And secondly, Jesus had to go to save sinners. That was His mission. To save sinners. And therefore, His disciples must join Him in the harvest. That's what you see in the text, right? Jesus had to go there to save sinners, and then He tells His disciples, join me in the harvest. By the way, Jesus is still doing the same thing. Jesus has gone into the world to save sinners today. And He is calling us who are His disciples to join Him in the harvest. To do like Jesus did. To do the kind of things that Jesus does. John, the author of this book, writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, Those who claim to live in God must live as Jesus did. What do we see Jesus doing in this text? We see Him crossing cultural and racial and ethnic lines and going as far as He needs to go to reach sinners with the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, we who are His disciples must do no less. Must be willing to cross whatever cultural, ethnic, racial, uh, linguistic, national boundaries we need to cross in order that sinners might hear the gospel and believe and become part of God's family just like we are. Jesus is calling His disciples to the harvest and if we are His disciples, we have to join in the harvest. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a great and gracious and good God who seeks and saves the lost and who one day sought and saved us that we might join You in the harvest of souls. And Father, we pray that You would give us boldness and passion and a great desire to see many men and women from every tribe and language and tongue and racial group, every socioeconomic class, every type of person around the world would hear the gospel and would be welcomed and received into Your kingdom with us that we might worship together all around Your throne as Revelation tells us one day we will. Father, help us to be faithful disciples who go out into the harvest and who declare Your greatness and glory and the salvation that is available through Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.